Whether we'll hear argument next in number 95-1376, Charles T. Robinson, Sr. versus Shell Oil Company. Well, I think that's their employee status. Mr. Lenchek. Mr. Chief Justice, and if it please the court, this case presents the question, does the provision of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibits retaliation against, quote, employees, unquote, for filing charges of discrimination or otherwise availing themselves of their rights under Title VII, namely Section 704A, does that section cover former employees, employees such as Petitioner Charles Robinson, who were discharged prior to the alleged retaliation? In this case, after Charles Robinson was terminated by Shell Oil, he filed a charge of discrimination against Shell under Title VII, and subsequently Shell gave him a negative job reference. He then brought the present action, alleging that that negative reference was made in retaliation for his earlier charge of discrimination. The Fourth Circuit held that Charles Robinson was not even entitled to have the court determine whether that reference was retaliatory because he was not employed by Shell at the time of the reference. If Shell had given him that reference the day before he was terminated, everyone agrees he would have had that right to a judicial determination. Well, if you're right, it's a rather sure way to make sure you don't get a bad reference. You just file a complaint with the EEOC a couple days before you're fired, even though the firing is completely justified. Well, that is not, in fact, what actually happened. No, it may not be what, in fact, happened in your case, but it certainly might happen in a number of other cases if we sustain your position. Or even if you're not going to be fired, even if you just intend to quit it, you'd be very wise before you quit to file an EEOC complaint, because then if the employer gives you a bad reference in your later job, he takes the risk of being sued for that on the basis of retaliation. He's buying a lawsuit. There are, in fact, disincentives to frivolous charges built into Title VII, which hopefully would take care of that problem. A person who brings a frivolous lawsuit under Title VII may be hit with attorney's fees and costs. Disincentives to filing a frivolous complaint with the EEOC? Any similar disincentives? There are no, the EEOC can't apply any disincentives like that. That's true. But we believe that the language... What other remedies are available to someone who, after he's been terminated, thinks that a reference was erroneously made and given by the former employer? Is there any other action at law that would be open for redress? There are possible actions under state law. Right. But it is well established that Title VII is intended to give parallel remedies to any other remedies that may be available. We believe that the language of Title VII and the purpose of Section 704A indicate that Congress intended former employees to be covered by the retaliatory section. Section 704A provides that it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to discriminate against any of his employees or applicants for employment because he has opposed a charge or because he has opposed an unlawful practice or because he has made a charge or participated in an EEOC 
proceeding as a possible witness. I emphasize that Section 704A protects an employee who has made a charge because the substantive provision of Title VII, Section 703A, cited in full and verbatim in the respondent's brief at page 14, makes it an unlawful employment practice to discharge any individual because of his race and so on. And that, that complaint was made here. That is what and, happened in this And case. the plaintiff right. lost. That's right. That's right. Now, an employee who is discharged will necessarily file his charge of discrimination after he ceases working for that employer. So when Congress wrote Section 704A... File his charge if he claims the discharge is discriminatory. Yes. He could, uh, the employee could remain employed and file a complaint that a failure to promote was discriminatory, couldn't he? That's right. That's right. But he would remain an employee, and if he were retaliated against because of that charge, he would ordinarily still be an employee and clearly be covered by the act. The point I want to make is that when Congress wrote this statute, it contemplated that people would file charges alleging that they were discriminatorily discharged. It's the time of the discrimination that, that, uh, that's relevant for 704A, and the exactly. person who is fired because he filed a complaint exactly. was an employee at the time he was fired. Exactly. So he would be he would be well covered, even if employee means only current employee. He would be covered by 703A. The issue in this case is if he's no longer an employee at the time of the retaliation, is he covered by the statute? Well, well if he's fired as a means of retaliation, if he's either not promoted or fired of course. If he, as a means of retaliation, of course. he would be covered under 704A, even if 704A is just limited to current employees. Right? That's right. Okay. That's right. So, but the point I want to make is that Congress knew that people would be subject to retaliation under 704A when they were no longer employees, because there would be a, people who filed charges alleging that they were discharged because of race and so on, and those people would necessarily be no longer employees at the time they might be retaliated against. So Congress must have contemplated that people who would be firing, fired would be filing charges and then might be retaliated against when they were no longer employees. Well, do we have to look at the definition in the applicable section here of the word employee? Is that how we should proceed? Unfortunately, uh, that definition has, this court has said that that definition doesn't help us much. Well, the definition says the term employee means an individual employed by an employer, and that is ambiguous in your view? Well, uh, it could court, include former employees, a person uh, employed. That is precisely what we're saying, because as the court has said uh, in Darden, that definition is a circular definition which doesn't help much in deciding who is an employee. And uh, as... That's right. Common law type employee versus an independent contractor. That's so this not, it's not circular for that purpose, but it just doesn't speak to what's at issue here. That's right. But as, as Your Honor pointed out in the earlier argument, uh, a word in a statute may have different meanings in different parts of the statute, and one must look at the purpose of the statute to decide what that particular meaning is in a given place in the statute. Well, I, I understand it to be your position that the uh, circular, though the defini definition may be, it's helpful to you in the sense that it is as consistent with the reading uh, who was employed by an employer 
as with the reading who is employed by an employer. So, so you're still in the game, uh, uh, even though the word employed is the modifier. That's, That's right. your argument. That is exactly right. Yeah. And, and in order to decide which of the multiple meanings the word employee has in this statute, one must look to the purpose of the statute. And the purpose of the statute, obviously, is to protect uh, those people who get discharged and then file charges of discrimination and may be subject to retaliation. And Congress clearly contemplated that those people would be making charges, would be subject to retaliation, and wrote the retaliation provision using the simple... Why should Congress contemplate that? I would, I, if I were a congressman, I would have had a hard time figuring out how an employer could retaliate against somebody who's no longer an employee. He could retaliate by refusing to rehire the guy, perhaps, uh, but in that case he's covered because he would be an applicant for employment. But the notion that he could retaliate uh, once, once the employment relationship is terminated, I, mean, I guess he could... He could send somebody over to, to mug him or something like that. But, How about uh, cutting off his pension benefits? That's right. Uh, and well, this, and this, surely that would be unlawful, wouldn't it? No well, question about it. This court well, said would, so. Would you need this act to, pre to, to prevent his... With, that's like sending somebody over to mug him. Y yes, You don't have to worry about that. that. You yes, have laws one, against it. Yes, one does need this act. Uh, in Arizona Governing Committee, which is cited in Hishon, which we cite in our case, this court said that cutting off pension benefits or discriminating with regard to pension benefits on the basis of sex was a violation of the substantive provision of Title VII. Uh, the reason one needs this act is because if an employer chose to cut off pension benefits as a retaliatory measure and then were, was, was uh, charged under the substantive provision of Title VII. Claim would be, you cut off my pension benefits because I'm black. The employer then, if this court upholds the Fourth Circuit, could come in and use the fact that it was motivated by retaliation as an affirmative defense to the charge that it was motivated by sex or race. If this court upholds the Fourth Circuit, an employer will have carte blanche to retaliate against discharged employees. As a matter I'm of not fact, sure. I'm not sure in the context of a pension or a bonus that there is not a sufficient ongoing relation so that the discrimination that you're hypothesizing uh, would be against an employee, even though the employee has been terminated. I think uh, there still are sub certain subsisting uh, relations between the, uh, the individual and the employer, uh, one of which is entitlements to pension, which would mean that he's an employee for that purpose. Yes, Justice Kennedy, that's right. Um, that would take care of, of that one particular class, but there's a broader class that would not be covered if this court upheld the Fourth Circuit, and that is all those people who have no remaining relationship with that employer, and if the court I, I was, I was the just directing my, my comments to the pension and, and bonus example, but I, I agree. Yes. The next point. But consider, consider what Shell Oil or any employer could do if this court upholds the Fourth Circuit. The day after this court hands down its decision, Shell Oil could announce a policy that any terminated employee who then later files a charge of discrimination against the company will be subject to retaliation. We will retaliate against you. We will cut off your pension if you have one. We will cut off your health benefits if you have one. And it wouldn't violate this law. And it would not violate it. It would certainly violate other laws, though. Maybe not. Maybe not. The well, you know, if a person has a vested pension and he's dismissed by an employer, there is no law that protects his enjoyment of that pension? That is absolutely right, but there is... That no, I, mean, I, I said, and there, there's no law that protects oh, him. Yes, there is, of course. ERISA yeah. would protect him. But, but there would be no cause of action against the employer who announced a policy of simply, we will but, not but give I, you any reference, and I we will not even acknowledge earlier, you work for us. I thought in our earlier colloquy that we just had that uh, 
you agreed that in the pension and bonus example, yes. the terminated individual would have a sufficient nexus yes. for the purpose of pension to be an employee even under the respondent's view. Right. All right, so then I don't think we should talk about uh, employers who are going to threaten former employees with cutting off their pensions because I thought we just agreed that that wasn't, wasn't the problem. But he could threaten can not to give a reference. Can you speak for the respondent on that issue? The respondent's literal plain language argument seems to me applies there as well as here. How, how do you know the respondent will agree with Justice Kennedy's suggestion? I don't think you have authority to say that. No, I can't. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Well, but, 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 it is, but it is certainly within the purview of a logical construction of his position. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for respondents. Very well, very well, Mr. Lanchek. <laughs> You'll let Justice Stevens and Justice Kennedy fight that out between themselves, is what you mean. Mr. Wilson, <laughs> we'll hear from you, Mr. Wilson. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, under the Court of Appeals reading of Section 704A, uh, any po employee who was discharged and who went to the EEOC with a, a complaint of discrimination would lack protection against his former employer uh, for, uh, for, uh, against retaliation by his former employer. Uh, I want to focus for a minute on uh, why that is. It seems just to be implausible that Congress would have carved out such a large category of employees uh, from the reach of Section 704, especially since uh, discharged employees are probably among uh, the, the category of employees. If, that if are we're really talking about what Congress might have intended, do you think Congress really intended that uh, a, an, an action could be brought against an employer who makes a, a, a reference for a person after, after he's been discharged? you think that was what Congress had in mind when we talked about retaliation against an employee? Well, um, I, I mean, I, I think do, that... Do, do you? I, I, that's, that is a, quite a possible uh, reach within Section 704. One of the things I want to focus on... Well, that, I mean, but you're talking about what did Congress intend. Do you, do you think that was what Congress had in mind? Congress, uh, Congress made Section 704 very, a very clear and strong uh, protection against retaliation. And I can't say that it focused specifically on the issue of references, but it did know that it was very necessary for employees to be able to approach the EEOC uh, without fear of adverse economic consequences from their employer for doing so. Well, what, what, what if in this case the, the, thing, uh, the request for references came 10 years? I, I, I'm aware of that hypothetical. I have to say, first of all, I have to say that uh, that hypothetical is not within the EEOC's experience that that, that, that uh, happens. Secondly, um, I, I think that that is really a very remote situation, and it has to be contrasted with a very realistic uh, situation uh, where somebody goes to the EEOC and very quickly after that uh, suffers retaliation. Uh, I, I well, but on, we're, we're going we're to have to cover them both, I gather. Well, I, 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 not I, cover them both or cover them both. I, I acknowledge, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that that uh, could plausibly come within the, uh, within the reach of the statute under Section 704, but I, I have to say I think that is a, a remote danger. I want to focus on... A, Suppose, never mind that. Suppose uh, the retaliation comes not from the employer, but from the uh, the individual employee, and not within the scope of the business at all, whom the uh, uh, whom the, the complainant charged with discrimination. I, that individual goes and uh, um, scratches his car, or, or slashes his tires, or or uh, right. destroys his home or something of that. Would I, that I, be right. covered by this? Two, two points. I mean, first of all... Would, would that be covered? Not today? necessarily. So, I mean, uh, not at all. Right. Well, it, it has to be an employer, first of all, who is... So, who so is you acknowledge there are some limitations yes. within the Act upon retaliation. Not all retaliation is meant to be protected. It, so all we're arguing about is whether one of the limitations is a, a limitation between present and employer and former employer. Right, a present employer and, and former employer. And... Uh, but it's not. But it isn't just references that that is at issue. I mean, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, had a colloquy, a colloquy earlier about uh, the, the problem of pension benefits. Uh, contesting an unemployment claim uh, is a situation that you would uh, might see. And uh, the court uh, in the 60s had a case called Nash against Florida Unemployment Commission, where it said that under the NLRA, that contesting an unemployment claim could be prohibited retaliation uh, under the National Labor Relations Act. And that I think is a, a situation that one might uh, very well expect to see. Somebody quits or is fired, believes that he was discharged, went to the EOC, uh, filed an unemployment claim, and immediately thereafter the employer decides, well, this one will contest, even though most unemployment claims for compensation uh, we let go because it isn't worth it, because we're just we're mad at the employee uh, for 
for filing uh, a claim of uh, discrimination. Uh, and references are also, I think, a, a situation where an employee might very well find that he uh, receives an adverse reference or he receives no reference at all. At all, an employee, an, an employer might normally have a practice of saying, "Well, we we say reasonably nice things about our employees once they've gone, but." Uh, 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 but uh, because this one has filed a discrimination charge, this one, if we get any request for a reference, we're just going to uh, pitch the request in the bin and not say anything at all. I don't know that why you give any references if there is even the slightest risk of your being sued for it. I don't know why you'd give. Why, why would an employer give any references? What, what is there in it for him if, if there's a, a possible liability attached? Well, I, I mean, first of all, the, the fact is that employers still do give references. Well, well uh, isn't, second, isn't, isn't the, the answer going to be what you've just said, that if he doesn't, under your view of the case, it's going to be retaliation too? Well, it's only... It he, must, must he, he, must, he must give a reference. It's only retaliation if he treats uh, people differently. I mean, the, the Section 704 is, is discrimination against an employee because he has filed a charge with the EEOC. But and it is certainly the employee's burden to show that there was, right. uh, there was a, a, a different approach taken in his case and that it was a... Wilson, by. May I ask you a question right there? One of the troubling things about the case is even assuming a former employee may be an employee within the meaning of the statute, can file charges and so forth, is it clear that the employer can discriminate against a former employee? Why is it discrimination? It doesn't say, the statute doesn't say specifically, 704, unlike 703, doesn't say discrimination in the terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. It just says a discrimination. But I would, that uh, even if, even if that's not the case, I certainly would think that uh, failing to give a reference or giving an adverse reference, if, if a reference is under the normal course of what an employer does for his employees uh, once uh, the employees leave the, com leave the company, if, that, uh, if an employer decides for one employee because he's filed an EEO charge, I'm going to treat him differently. Then no, but their policy assumes is to tell the truth in all, in all, you know, whether they like the employer or not. They say, we didn't like this guy. That's discrimination. It, it's only discrimination if it, uh, if it is affected by the retaliation, that is to say. Well, so wouldn't say, this play out in, in how, it, suppose this case had gone to court. The employer says, we gave an honest reference. The plaintiff is then out of court unless the plaintiff shows that's a pretext, right? Well, I mean. That's, the, a, that's a legitimate non-retaliatory reason. It could be. The, the allegation in this case, of course, is that the, the uh, and it's in, the complaint is reprinted in the joint appendix, the allegation in this case is that the reference was false, in fact, and that it was motivated by, uh, by retaliation. I want to talk about the word employee. I assume, I assume that, the, uh, that the employer cannot protect himself when he gets a request for a reference by simply saying, uh, you know, I, I do normally give references, but I'm sorry in the case of this employee, uh, I, I don't want to say anything either good or bad because uh, uh, he had filed a complaint and I'm worried about being prosecuted. You, you would say that that is yes, discrimination, yes, not yes. giving a reference either way. And certainly if, refer if, if referring to the fact that, uh, that, that he's filed an EEOC a charge, one thing... So the only way for the employer to be sure that he, that he won't be sued is not to give any references for any employees? Well, not to treat any employee differently, uh, on the, on the, not to affect the reference because the employee uh, filed an EEOC charge. One of the things, though, is that this, this is something that it doesn't really turn on just former, it doesn't turn on former and current employees. That is, the lower courts have, have pointed out that uh, giving someone an adverse reference as retaliation uh, for filing an EEO charge uh, is some, something that a current employee uh, could bring also. So it, it doesn't, whatever problems there may be with what is retaliation and is giving an adverse reference, you know, quote, you know, re discrimination or is it re in, as retaliation, it, it doesn't, it's not directly addressed to the analytical question in this case, and I don't think the court has to reach any of the, the specific difficult issues, the difficult issues that might arise in any specific factual circumstances about, you know, would a bad reference be a retaliation in a particular case. Turning to the question of employee, uh, our position is that employee uh, is, uh, uh, is susceptible of, of two meanings, and, one, and certainly uh, including uh, former employee, and uh, ordinary usage or common usage of the word uh, bears that out. One could say that uh, he gives his employees good references, and uh, in, that, in that situation, uh, the speaker would... Well, would I just want to make sure I understood the point you made before. You're saying commonly people know that they're on their way out, and so they start looking around for a job earlier. So the, exactly the employer is, faces the same problem uh, with respect to references for people 
who are currently on the workforce, but they didn't get the promotion, so they're just biding their time till they get a new job. Exactly the same right. problem for the employer. But doesn't the... But nobody suggests that that's not right. covered by Title VII, at least. But if, if the interpretation that you are opposing were the law, then the message to the employer is don't keep that person on, give him time to look for another job, get rid of him. Because as soon as he's a non-employee, then he has nothing that he can do. Uh, well, I, I, I think it's the result you point out is, is uh, and this was pointed out, I believe, in the, in the dissenting uh, opinion below, that that's one of the anomalies of that construction, which is it encourages... I don't think that was the question, uh, Mr. Lanchek. Your time has expired. Not Mr. Lanchek, Mr. Wolfson. Uh, Mr. Butler, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is a case involving statutory interpretation. Any case involving the proper interpretation of a statute must begin by examining the statutory language. Don't you think that language in the definition section can be read two ways? No, I don't, Your Honor. Employed? No, I don't. Nor do I think that the definition of employee within Title VII is a total tautology. It does serve a purpose to distinguish between individuals and employees. I think that that distinction between the two is very apparent when you look at Section 703. If you look at Section 703A, which is at page 14 of my brief, you can see that employee or employment is a status that is obtained by an individual. Well, but Title VII authorizes courts to order reinstatement or hiring of employees. Now, that has to include former employees. Yes, but I, I think you get back to what Justice Scalia pointed out. If there is an event, a discriminatory event that occurs, mm -hmm. then you look at the event and the status of the individual at the time the event occurred. And certainly if an employer yes, fires someone... Not if someone, the statute doesn't say that. And filing charges, it says employee may file a charge. That's true. And even though he's a former employee. Yeah, but uh, I think you do have to look at the distinction between alleging discrimination under 703 and retaliation under 704, because they are not coextensive. How do, you resolve the, excuse me, Go ahead. how do you resolve the debate between Justice Kennedy and me? Is a, is a, 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 a retired employee who's getting a pension still an employee? No. So, so no. you agree with me? I, I do agree with you, Justice <laughs> Kennedy. <laughs> even if you lose the case. <laughs> I would hope not, Justice uh, Kennedy, but I do not agree that a person can be an employee for the purposes of some benefits and not others. I think that that is a line drawing that is not justified by the statute. The statute talks in terms of employment, and I think that is a bright line. But you've already, you've already acknowledged that the word employee, the word employee in this very statute means former employee in a number of contexts. One the time you have to file a charge. It uses the word employee, right? It doesn't say former employee. It just says employee, but obviously it's talking about former employee. Well, I would disagree only to state, uh, Justice Ginsburg, that at the time the charge is filed, the status is irrelevant. It is the time of the retaliatory the, act the or the time The statute uses the word employee. Yes. The statute uses the word employee to describe an individual yes. who happens to be a former employee, but the statute identifies that individual as employee, and everybody knows that employee, the word employee, in that statute means former employee. I, I, I disagree with the construction because I do think it depends on when you have to identify the employee. Now, the words are the same. It is used the same, but I would add something else, uh, Justice when Ginsburg. When the statute says an employee may, may file a charge within X number of days, right? does that word employee mean current employee and former employee? It can mean either, it can mean uh, an employee at the time the event occurred. Also under 70... the person who's filling out the form, at the time he fills out the form, is what the statute is talking about, and at the time he fills out the form, he's not an employee. Isn't that correct? That, that's right, at the time he fills out the form. But are we under 703 or 704? Oh, but that's a different argument, and I don't know why you don't make that argument, that, that it can mean other things in, in other contexts, but in this context it doesn't. Well, I really think you're taking on a terrible burden to say that it always and everywhere means a current employee. It quite obviously doesn't. Uh, Your Honor, 
I do accept that argument, but I would point out there is an additional word that I think does bear uh, looking at under Section 704. Employers are told that they are responsible for his employees. And I think if you go, if you take the common usage of that term, you go to any employer in this country and you say, for whatever purpose, you are responsible for your employees, his employees. No one is going to assume that, well, gee, I guess that means I'm responsible for Joe Blow. who are saying is that the normal meaning is a current employer. Exactly. Although in some contexts, it's, it can be used differently. That's unusual. But Certainly. in some contexts, you, you have to understand that it, it's being used differently. That's right. And, and uh, you say this is just the normal context. That's correct. That's correct. There's no reason not to accept the normal construction of the word employee, at least in Section 704. Mr. Butler, I, I know there's an answer to this, and I'm really asking you for help on it. In 704 that's quoted on page 4 of your text, there's also a reference to discriminate against any individual. That's right. Why, why, that's because if that's, you look at theory. who that affects, the individual language is used for employment agencies. So if an employment agency... I'm sorry, I'm looking at 703. You mean it refers back, it says... Yeah, foreign, I'm sorry, foreign. right. It, it, it does uh, relate to employment agencies, joint labor management committees. Well, certainly the person would not be an employee of the agency or the labor management committee or other training programs. That's why they have to use the word individual there. But I think it's telling okay. that they didn't use individual throughout. Well, it's not all that telling because uh, individual is a lot broader than present and former employee. Yes. I mean, you, 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 can, you could want employee to include former employees without wishing it to include everybody in the world, former that's, employee or not. That's certainly true. And uh, I think uh, the point there is that it demonstrates that 704 is a narrowly constructed statute. It is Mr. not Butler, even... Would it cover a case where an applicant, an employee, current employee, doesn't get the promotion and is stays on the payroll, continues to work, but is looking for another job. In the course of that job search, gets a reference which that employee says is retaliatory. Such a person would have both the um, discrimination claim, the 703 claim, and the retaliation claim, right? That's Maybe correct. baseless claim, it may be frivolous claim, but he has it. That's correct. So now let me go back to the question that I was putting before to Mr. Wilson. Doesn't that scenario mean that the employer, once he doesn't give the promotion to this person, should say, and you're out, because if the employer keeps the person on for any interval, then the employer is subject to retaliation charge. But the employer can insulate the company from any retaliation charge by saying, if we don't promote this person, they're out the door. We don't keep them on. I would, I would agree with you to this extent, that once the employment is over, yes, 704 does not apply. If the employment relationship is ongoing, yes, it does apply. So the incentive for the employer of your reading is get rid of the person. Then yeah. we insulate ourselves at least from the retaliation charge. Uh, to the extent an employer is motivated by a desire to give negative references, I'd agree with that. But well, I'm he doesn't have to fire me. He could, just, he could just tell him, well, I'll, I'll write you a letter, but, but not now. My policy is to write reference letters after you've left the company. Sure. That, that would handle the problem, wouldn't it? You don't have to fire him. Just say, I, I don't give any reference letters for anybody while you're still employed here. That's correct. That's correct. I do think that the statute does contain a bright line test, and that bright line is whether or not you have an employment relationship. I listened with great interest to the case that was argued just before mine, and what interested me was not whether or not the court decides between the payroll plan or the day-by-day -day plan in counting the number of employees, but the fact that each of the speakers in this morning's argument said that at least to be an employee under that uh, section of the statute, you had to have an ongoing employment relationship. And I couldn't agree more. You cannot have an ongoing employment relationship and uh, if you do not have an ongoing employment relationship, I don't see but how of course you can be there, covered by the In, in the previous case, the test was whether a small employer is covered. And that's probably a narrower definition of employee than someone who is entitled to sue under, under the Act. That's certainly true. But I do think that it, it's a strained argument to suggest that employee means different things in different places within the Act. 
and to for the EEOC. Oh, but you just insist- admitted that. I mean, in response to Justice Scalia's um, uh, attempt to help you out, you said, "Well, yeah, that's right. I'd accept that argument." <laughs> you're you're not gonna you're not gonna kick him now, are you? <laughs> Perhaps I should have accepted his answer. <laughs> but I think that the uh, test that uh, you're sowing all sorts of dissension in the court here, you know. <laughs> I think the test that has been established does make some sense. Not that I'm trying to divine the will of Congress from 32 years ago. I don't think any of us can do that. But uh, the point that uh, you brought up, Justice O'Connor, about there being other remedies available under common law is certainly true in this instance in particular. And, in fact, it seems to be a burgeoning area of the law for the states to enact uh, employment reference statutes that protect both the employee and ability to get an employment reference and the employer to protect them against frivolous claims. Mr. Butler, assuming, and I think we would all recognize that your interpretation is a reasonable one, if one also thinks that the EEOC's interpretation is a reasonable one uh, without giving any undue deference, shouldn't the court respect the agency that is administering the statute day in and day out? Well, I would disagree in this case, certainly, Your Honor. I think that the reason for that is because the EEOC position, the uh, petitioner's position, is not supported by the statutory language. I mean, it's all well and good to speak about the policies and purposes of the Act, but Congress doesn't pass declarations of policy. It doesn't pass resolutions of purpose. It passes statutes. And we have to read the statute to see what but it is we wanted to do. employed by can mean past tense. Or present, I suppose. Uh, if you want to look at it from a linguist standpoint, I think that's absolutely true. But statutes aren't passed for linguists. They're passed for ordinary citizens. And if we accept... I don't know. This court gets pretty picky sometimes about <laughs> what language... I think if you, if you uh, try to analyze the language into uh, whether it's active or passive voice and whether it's past or present tense you completely lose sight of what any ordinary individual would read when they read 704, that an employer cannot yeah, be certain to back to his If you go back to the pension example, there are some pension plans that allow disability benefits or benefits based on length of service and so forth. And the disability plans will often require a medical examination to qualify for that particular benefit. And you're suggesting that the company could say to the doctor of black former employees, find him not disabled, but doctors of other employees, they could. And that doesn't seem likely to fit into the scheme of the statute. I, I would say it would be highly illegal, but not necessarily under this act. I think it would What act would it violate? ERISA. You couldn't get away with it. Oh, I see. All right. But you, this, of course, came before ERISA. It would have, been, would have been perfectly lawful until ERISA was passed. Well, uh, we... Um, Indeed, you say that's why they passed ERISA, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> took words right out of my mouth. <laughs> you only find that out if you go into the legislative history of ERISA. <laughs> I find the statute alone impenetrable, so uh, the legislative history, I doubt it would be any help. Uh, I would conclude, uh, Your Honor, by suggesting that a strained interpretation, or in fact really a rewording of 704, is what the petitioner is asking for, to include terms that were not included when this act was passed 32 years ago. And if you do that, then uh, you will lead to absurd results. It will create a disincentive for employers to ever issue any reference. They'd either uh, issue no references, all good references, or all bad references, because if they do anything else, they're setting themselves up for a claim of retaliation by anyone who had previously filed a charge, valid or not. That's true, but as as, uh, Justice Ginsburg's points out that problem isn't, isn't entirely solved by how we come out on this case, because you do have the problem of references for current employees, and, and you do subject yourself That's true. to a problem there. That's true. As long as you can prove that the issuance of a reference is a benefit of employment, yes, you do have that problem. No, you don't even have to show that. Uh, if it's a retaliatory, retaliatory oh, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't have to be a term or condition. I agree. That's right. You can do that. And so the, re- the, the problem that you brought up, which is a real one, about truthfulness in performance ratings, and the remedy for that, do you uh, make a false representation? All of that is just the same if you give the reference before the person leaves your employee. So you don't 
So you're pointing out that this is a problem. Yes, it's a problem, but the problem doesn't depend upon whether former employees are covered. The problem exists for current employees. Well, Not a reason to reject inclusion of former employees. Well, timing is everything. And under the Act, the time of the Act is important to determine the status. And the Act does offer more protection to people who are employed to those who are not employed. And I think that that is consistent with the uh, purposes of the Act, as such as we can divine from what they wrote. Because the Act was not meant to be a bad Act's law. It was not designed to cure all forms of discrimination. But, but your answer to me does say, then, for whatever reason, employers, you are home free by discharging someone. You will not be by keeping, keeping that person well, in the current position where the person is doing okay. I would hesitate to say home free only because there are other acts, other statutes, other causes of action. For purposes of Title VII. Yeah, for, the, for purposes of the retaliation section. For the, yes. For, if you narrow it down to the purposes of 704A, yeah, I agree with you. But there are other acts and laws that would have to come into play. It would be very foolish for an employer to retaliate against anyone. Mr. Butler, it, it just occurs to me, is it entirely clear that, that the phrase to discriminate against any of his employees is, is cut apart from um, with respect to terms or conditions of employment? I mean, suppose I run a very small business and, and somebody, um, what happens is what happens here. Somebody files a, a discrimination complaint that is totally groundless. Uh, uh, I don't fire the individual because I'm, I'm afraid that that will be considered uh, retaliation. Uh, however, I used to have uh, other members of, uh, or other employees home for dinner with my wife and me uh, with some frequency. And I no longer invite this fellow because I don't like him anymore right. because he filed this frivolous complaint. Is that covered? Well, if he's no longer employed, my... No, no, he's still employed. Yeah. He's still employed. I, I mean... I see what you're saying. No, you I, I don't think he is because I... And I think the, uh, the circuit courts that have tried to address that type of question have, uh, have uh, retreated into language about it being reasonably related to the employment. Reasonably related to the employment. Right. Mr. Butler, uh, does the act itself, does it use the word retaliate? No, actually it does not. So Except, why are we talking about retaliation? It's a shorthand term. It says discriminate on the basis of having made a charge, participated in an uh, investigation or a proceeding. And that's just shorthand term. Well, what if the employer treats everybody alike who has made a charge? He retaliates against them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, the argument on the other side, Your Honor, would be that he's treating them differently than the people who have not made charges. And in that sense, it's discrimination. But it is a, it's, a, it's a short, retaliate is a shorthand form for the statutory Exactly right. Language. The words retaliation are not included in Title VII. So it is, it's different. You know, you don't need to look any further than the facts of this case to see what types of results can accrue because we have tried the discrimination case. And as part of the discrimination case, we had to prove, I had to put on evidence that showed all of the events that formed the basis for the discharge. Wouldn't that evidence also show that your, the discrimination charge has no merit? Absolutely. And that's what Justice Mott, uh, Judge Mott in Baltimore ruled, that there was no discrimination. We put on that evidence and, in effect, proved the reasons for uh, discharging the individual, and yet truth is no defense. And then set forth those same reasons in the reference uh, to the new employer. They are the basis for the reference. The same, yes. the same reasons that had been affirmed in litigation. That's correct. And there's nothing in the reference that says that the man filed a charge of discrimination. We well, simply since, since the language uh, relied on is the same, you refer to discrimination, is that not uh, the law of the case now, or no? It wouldn't be, Your Honor. It, it wouldn't be, Your Honor, because of it being two different statutes, and each statute has a separate basis for discrimination—not discrimination on the basis of sex or religion or national origin, but rather discrimination on the basis of having filed a charge or participated in a proceeding. Now, but I do think that I'd be entitled to collateral estoppel effect for the evidence that was put on on the events themselves that led to the discharge. Well, those events were the basis for giving a bad employment reference. You know, it's not like Title VII ignores what happens to people after well, they lose their employment. Well, nobody's disagreeing with that. I think the EEOC would agree with you that, that you have a very strong defense to this claim. The oh, I think is so. whether you have to defend. I, I think so, but I don't think I should even have to put that evidence on twice. I've tried this case once. I don't think I should have to try it again because he's not covered by the statute. 
I go back to my question about how much of a trial is involved. Don't you, aren't you in a situation of getting summary judgment just by putting in the, the, the result of the prior trial? And then the plaintiff has, to, has a pretty heavy burden to overcome if he can't do anything to say uh, it was a little pretext or whatever. The, the plaintiff would never get to trial on a case like this, would they? Uh, no, I wouldn't think so, and that would have been the motion I filed if my motion to dismiss hadn't been granted. Well, I don't know. Why couldn't he put on the fact that you, you, the employer, had some very mean things to say about him after this uh, complaint was filed and after you were vindicated in court and you said, that, you know, that son of a gun, we got him. And he had a, an odious and hateful person, all right? And, and, and this is all put on the record, and the allegation to be made would be, oh, yes, there were good reasons for the bad recommendation, but in fact, the motive here, the truth isn't the defense, is it? If, if, the, if the motive is retaliatory, exactly it doesn't right. matter that what you say is true. That's right. So you have to convince the jury that this is not only true, but that the real reason you wrote that letter was, was what? I don't know, to be helpful to the new employer rather than to retaliate against this fellow you've called hateful and odious. Exactly right. Now, it would take additional evidence other than what was put on. And the jury might not believe you. That's true. That's true. So, uh, you know, even though we have proved the truth of the underlying basis, that truth forms no defense absolute against a claim of retaliation under 704A. So we're left with having told the truth about a former employee and yet find ourselves accused of retaliation under 704. Indeed, if truth were a defense, this retaliatory cause of action would, would give this particular plaintiff no, no, no more benefit than would the normal uh, libel law. Exactly. It would, it would be uh, pretty much the same as any defamation action in any state. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to point out that Mr. 704... Mr. Butler, may I ask you one question? Sorry. How often do you give references in discharge cases? In discharge cases? Uh, quite often. They do give uh, references. In discharge cases? Where it's uh, discharge for cause? Yes, yeah. even at that. We and will... your solution for your case is, uh, is a solution that will also preclude uh, uh, a claim in a case in which someone says, the employer says, look, you file a charge against me, and I will see to it that you will never work in this business again. Your Honor, so it's that... not, it's, what I'm getting at is that it is not just the frivolous case, the frivolous uh, charge in your case, the reference, but it is also an instance in which an employer says you will absolutely never work in this business again. It precludes that. It precludes any claim of retaliation by someone after they've dis been discharged, whether it's frivolous or whether it's serious. You're, you're quite correct. And you could solve your problem by not giving references in discharge cases. That's correct. But, John, I would also point out that, that does, the act itself does give a cause of action to someone caught in that situation. And the act points them to the direction of the next employer, the prospective employer. Because if a second employer will refuse to hire somebody, will not uh, accept their application in retaliation for having filed a charge or participated in a procedure, why would that is somebody who is not yet an employer retaliate? That, I know that was in your brief, but that seemed to me very strange. The, um, the employer that has fired a person gives a bad reference, and then you're suggesting, well, there may be a claim against the next person who won't hire that person in reliance. I mean, as, as a lawyer, don't you think you'd have a much stronger case against the one who gave the reference, allegedly false, than the one who credited it? No, I don't, because that's not what the statute says. The statute says that the person who is doing the hiring. I think it. I think it, it wouldn't be retaliation, of course, but the statute doesn't use the word retaliate. That's right. It's but if you are a, a, a prospective employer and you turn down an applicant because I don't want to hire an applicant who has filed an EEOC complaint with his previous employer, this guy is a troublemaker. It wouldn't really be retaliation, but it would violate this provision because it specifically refers to applicants for employment, right? Yes, we may be getting ourselves in trouble by using the shorthand term of retaliation. retaliation. Yeah, but it, right. as a practical matter, it seems to me the, the situation you posit is not what's going to happen except uh, uh, among very, very stupid employers because the, the retaliatory letter is, going, is not going to say, don't hire this guy because he filed a complaint. 
the letter's going to say, don't hire him because he does lousy work. And, and the prospective employer who relies upon that uh, is, is not drawing any distinction uh, among employees that are among prospective employees that is not a legitimate distinction. So there's not going to be any cause of action there. I would agree. If it is a truthful reference, why should there be? If the employer is making a truthful reference about someone, does the employee really... No, but I, thought your argument was, I thought your argument was uh, that the person who is subject to this discrimination will have a cause of action under the statute against the prospective employer who relies upon the retaliatory letter. Oh. And unless the retaliatory letter is expressly based upon filing the EEOC complaint, that won't be true. That's right. Or if he could somehow prove that whatever statements were made in the letter were actually fabricated because of that because of the charge, and he knew about it, the prospective employer knew, to, knew about it, right. then you could make a case on that. You know, that's yes. a tough uphill fight, but that's not going to be the characteristic case. I, I, I would think not. But uh, uh, it wasn't extensively discussed in any of the briefs, but I was uh, struck by analysis that uh, uh, Chief Justice uh, Toflat in the 11th Circuit wrote in 1990, where he analyzed this whole claim under uh, Court v. Ash and whether there would be an implied cause of action under that test, and he said there's no conclusion other than it cannot, because there is a remedy contained within the statute, and what you're doing is trying to uh, broaden that statute for an additional remedy against additional parties, and that's not, uh, you know, that's not what you should be doing in recognizing a new cause of action. I think the, the language of the statute is very plain. I think it, it's plain to employers, certainly, and we can only assume it was plain to Congress when they wrote it. This act applies to employees and applicants for employment. It does not apply to anyone else. Those two groups will always be able to claim their rights under 704 regardless of the outcome of this case. But to rewrite this act to include former employees will only destroy the act by destroying the certainty of the statute itself. If you rewrite it, then no one will be sure what it means in the future and to whom it will apply. I think we're best sticking with the bright line. Once the employment is over, any rights under 704 have terminated. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Butler. Mr. Lenchik, you have three minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, unless the court has additional questions, we have nothing further. Very well. The case is submitted.